Season 2, Episode 11 of The Pantry Party. We are your hosts, I'm Eliza, and joining me is Bran. Hello! Can say hi? Um, Delay, what a good time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know, we're, we're back, we're here, still here, still kicking around. Um, and yeah, exciting times. We were just saying we've had to re-record this audio because my <laughs> microphone wasn't connected. So <laughs> if this feels a bit clunky, that's why. Um, but we were just saying that it's been a wild ride this season. Yeah. And it's been pretty amazing that we've been able to get it recorded. We've done like, yeah, a whole season um, virtually, which like I know people do all the time. It's not, you know, a new thing. But it was, yeah, I think it's a bit of an achievement. I think that's something we've achieved in the last six months. Yeah, for sure. Especially considering, like, you and I have zero training or understanding of podcasting. Like, you know, we, yeah. we're just kind of winging it and, and doing our best to get our voices on the internet. Yeah. Um, but it's been really nice because, obviously, the last well, six months that we've been recording this has been pretty eventful for us personally and more broadly in the world. Um, Mm. And so it's been nice to have that kind of change and, like, transition, I guess, documented. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Liza called it a glow up before and I've never felt more millennial in my life. I know, I'm I'm regretting using that term already, (laughs) especially because of the connotations with, like, looking better and, like... It's an intellectual glow-up, is that what we're we're calling it? An intellectual glow-up? Can we catch the next episode that? Cool. Nice. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Shall we jump into today's episode? Yeah. We are going to talk about learning through people, so the importance of mentoring relationships, which we've touched on in the past, um, the importance of peer relationships and how they can be just as effective and valuable as a mentoring relationship, Um, and also something that's very relevant in the world right now, um, the importance of respecting, understanding and utilising lived experience. Um, and how that can enhance you personally and professionally, um, which all of these, I guess, areas can really. Um, but yeah, the you know, not um, I guess, really shining a light on the value of learning through people. Yeah, that was a very good intro, and <laughs> well done. Um, <laughs> so I guess we touched on this a little bit in our last episode, in that we were talking a little bit about you know, the development of skills and learning um, and the way that mentoring and peer relationships can support that. So I guess that's a good foundation of where we could start with this topic. Um, I think something that I think is really undervalued is the power of peer relationships. Like 
having people around you to help solidify your learning and to give you feedback that's not um, super formalized is really, really valuable. Mm. Um, And yeah, just having kind of people to bounce off and learn from, I think can really enrich your understanding of topics, whatever they might be, whether it's relevant to your degree or more broader, like in the world. Um, It's just good to have people to chat to these, like about these things with. So yeah, what are your thoughts on on that? I think when we went through uni, there was actually not just uni, but like even conversations with just other professionals or throughout my life, I feel like there's been this growing concept of having a mentor um, and having someone that's senior to you um, in an area that you think you want to work in. Um, in terms of that professional sense. And I've always felt quite intimidated by that um, (laughs) because (laughs) I... Well, I just never... Yeah, I feel like we were both in the same boat. They were kind of like, I know what I want to do, but I don't really know what I want to do with the skill, like with the degree that I have for the most most part of, I guess, of our tertiary education. And so it felt like when people were starting to think about getting mentors and things, I felt like I was behind the eight ball because... I was like, what's the point in wasting someone's time if I don't know what I want out of them? Um, Yeah, for sure. Yeah, which is, I don't know, it's quite an odd way to think about it, I guess. Um, Because now looking, I guess, in hindsight, which I'm not that far out of it, really. But I guess the purpose of having a mentor varies depending on where you're at in your life and what you need them Mm -hmm. for. So there's no, I guess, the... I guess what I'm trying to get at is that there's no one way of, of having a mentor. And I think there was also a lot of heavy emphasis on having that formalized mentoring relationship versus as we'll touch on peer relationships and how much learning I got from just talking to my mates about things and people who are on the same level and in quoted in quotation marks about the things that I was feeling and the things that we were going through. Yeah. And I think one of the problems for me when I was sort of, thinking about the mentoring relationships and the expectations to have a mentor in practice Mm. was that it was based on a very normative dietetic progression. And so I think my perception of mentoring was like, you know, having like a clinical dietitian as your mentor who's there to help you become a clinical dietitian because Mm. that's sort of the only thing that was presented to us. And so when I was like thinking about mentoring, I was like, well, I know that I don't want to, like a lot of the people in my industry, that's not the job that I want to have and that's not the life that I want to lead. And so I knew that it was like, while they would obviously have a lot of useful insight and important information that they could impart on me, I was kind of like, well, I'm not aspiring to be like them. So like, where do I go for mentoring? And so it was kind of difficult to find someone who was a good fit because I was, I was quite, um, I guess, yeah, in that we're working in an area that's a little bit um, alternative and radical in terms of our approach, I really wanted someone who aligned with those values and could help me, like, continue that learning rather than someone that was just going to be like, okay, well, like, let's talk about your CPD and what, you know, what you're developing this this week or whatever. And so I think... um, 
not having the expect like I knew that I didn't want to fit into that like proposed framework of what a dietitian does and is Mm. and so it was quite difficult to find like where I could actually carve out that space for myself to explore what I could be and what my potential was because at that point like you said although you know like there was this this air of like well I don't really know what I want to do but I know that it's not this Mm. and so it was sort of having to find that place where I could explore the way that I wanted to approach things and allow that to kind of develop quite naturally rather than really pushing it into one direction. Yeah. I think for me, you touched on that kind of like CPD progressing towards being a, you know, full with like an APD or whatever. Um, For me, I feel like my journey was a little bit of the opposite from that. Like I... Because I ended up in a role that wasn't a traditional dietetic role in the first place, I kind of needed a mentor who would be able to help me get through the bread and butter of doing stuff without association, Mm. because I didn't really have much brain space to think about things outside of that, I guess, um, to an extent. And so for me, it was kind of good to have that. And this is what I mean, is in each mentoring relationship is different and what your needs from it will be different. Um, compared to the next person because my mentor Sarah was an absolute gem when it came to like clinical dietetics knowledge and she was had a wealth of information on CPD and how to I guess and she knew what you know that I love the health at every size and intuitive eating and wasn't dismissive of that but was able to kind of well like round me quite well in terms of like a general dietetic framework which is kind of what I needed um, considering I wasn't really doing much dietetics work but now I have another mentor well it's an unofficial mentor now that I've finished my official mentorship with Sarah but I have another mentor called Kim who is one of those people that I could just talk for hours and hours and hours and learn a lot from just from talking and discussing and she's very much on the health at every size framework like paradigm and very into intuitive eating and is going through a lot of career changes herself but is um, quite a lot more experienced than I am And it's interesting seeing that dynamic change and the relationship change from that mentoring relationship from one to the other. Um, And I've definitely learnt equal amounts from both um, and can rely on both for different things. So it's been quite interesting seeing that kind of shift in what I want out of a, a mentoring relationship and what support I need from it at a particular time. Um... As I said, I think I said this year, I've just been like loving talking to people, learning a lot by talking to people. And that's kind of what I needed the most as opposed to actually doing stuff in terms of check boxes and whatnot. So having that with Kim has been really, really great for me this year specifically. Yeah. And I think that's something to note as well is that when you are fresh to the industry and you are going through like the APD program, if you're in Australia, you do need to do quite a lot of like, you know, meeting those sort of that framework and those guidelines for what you need to do to maintain your CPD and to record like learning objectives and all of that. Mm. And I think that's really useful um, in solidifying your skills. I just found it quite difficult to apply in the parts, like the parts of learning that I was interested in, because I feel like a lot of it was a little bit too focused on like clinical. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we don't need to go into that, but anyway, um, (laughs) 
Yeah, and like I guess I think recognizing as you sort of said that as you progress through your career, what you need from these relationships will change. And that's okay. And that's something that I think is really important to lean into and go with because, you know, if you keep using the same sort of structures and frameworks the whole time, you're not going to grow and you're not going to progress and you're not going to learn. And so I think having that flexibility to, again, like reflect on what you're learning and how that's going for you and being able to move forward and like seek out the things that you actually need from that like relationship is really, really valuable. Like, I think um, something that's been really powerful for me since I've moved is finding, um, I guess, a bit of a network within, like, the people that we work with, um, within work, and then our sort of, you know, the people on our periphery who kind of um, dip in and out of our sort of, like, workplace. It's been really nice to just have people who are on a similar trajectory um, all at different points and with different sort of focus points of where they're going. But it's been really valuable to have just kind of like a hive mind of of people who actually like get what I'm trying to do and get like I, I sort of resonate with, which has been really good. Um, so I guess now that like, you know, that official mentoring period is over and we're sort of moving more into less structured relationships it's becoming more like a peer relationship as you kind of gain competence as a practitioner and as you yeah as you just feel a little bit more confident and yeah competent as a clinician Mm. those relationships start to shift less from the like as you said before like more advanced person with like someone who's new to everyone being on the same level um, and I guess that's where the like peer relationships come in because the whole way through you'll have relationships with people who are on a similar level to you. Mm-hmm. But I think as you find your place within this industry, that then creates like a little bit, it, it allows for more of those relationships to like branch out and develop into a network rather than feeling like you need to be um, dependent on, One yeah, like certain people. Yeah. yeah. I think that leads us to a good point and something that I always struggled with when I was in in uni and to some extent post-uni as well. But how did you, I guess, officiate a relationship? How did you find a mentor relationship? And I guess how did you go about, yeah, how did you go about contacting them and wanting them to be your official, unofficial mentor, whatever it was? Because I think that's the hardest um, part. Is I, like you have to have the confidence to yeah. really come out of that, out of the blue, and just be like, "Hey, can you be my mentor?" Which is not necessarily how it always works. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit, it's a bit weird because it's something that, especially if you're new to the profession, like no, you wouldn't have had that kind of relationship before. You wouldn't have reached out to someone in that way. Mm. Um, I actually found Jess through the Mindful Dietitian Facebook group. So, um, like Fee Sutherland's group that she has on Facebook Um, and Jess had posted that she was opening a position to like be a mentor for someone and I sent her a message and we met up well she was in Sydney and I was in Melbourne so we chat over the um, over Skype or whatever it was Um, so we like met each other had a bit of a chat about 
our expectations of the process just to make sure that it was a good fit and that we actually had, you know, aligned goals and interests and things. Mm. And so we had a quick chat and then decided to go forward with it. And then obviously because that was my like APD mentoring relationship, it had to be quite like structured and officiated by the the process. But yeah, that was really good. And I guess, um, when I was like reaching out to her, I was like scared shitless. I was like, I've got no idea what to say, what to do. Like it just felt so unnatural. But I think once you open up those doors to that, like to that relationship and you've kind of made contact, then it's fine. Like, yeah. You know, what was your experience with it? Mine's been quite weird in both situations. So my first mentor, Sarah, (laughs) she actually, hired me for my first project research project that I was working on so we kind of crossed paths in a non-dietetic setting for the most part um and I think it was good it was beneficial for both of us because I had so much to learn from her in terms of her experience as a clinical dietitian and then moving away from that um and also got to you know she got to keep her foot I guess in the mentoring young dietitian space as well um so it was kind of a really good, weirdly good coincidental arrangement for both of us. Um, and I was at a point where, like I said, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And it was just incredibly convenient that Sarah was an APD because she could give me some perspective that I hadn't really heard of, I guess. Like I'd always had an idea about clinical dietetics and what it was like, but she'd been in that world for quite a long time and was now stepping away from it. So I think she was at a really interesting point in her career to be mentoring me. Um, and I think I got a lot out of it in that way. So it was one of those weird stars aligned type, (laughs) um, situations. Um, and then with my mentoring relationship with Kim, um, actually, oddly enough, we, um, got in contact through my ex-boyfriend's grandparents. Very strange. Um, but she's the one that I still talk to all the time now. And was it was one of those, I just had to email her out of the blue. Like I submitted a form on her website and was like, hey, this is who I am. This is how I heard of you. Um, I'm super, she was really into, you know, intuitive eating and health at every size. And I mentioned that I was really interested in working in that. Would love to have a chat for coffee one day. And we met up for coffee and we were there for like two and a half hours. Um... And then it just kept going from there. So we just meet up every couple of months now to have a chat about all things work-related, not work-related. Talk about the positives and negatives of private practice and working in a hospital and PD and have a complaint about how expensive being a private practitioner is. (laughs) Like, all of that Mm -hmm. stuff. Um, So... I think it is unfortunately one of those things when you first start doing it, you're just going to feel so effing uncomfortable sending it like a cold email out of the blue or um, it's really awkward to ask someone to be your mentor for sure. There's no way of escaping that, but you kind of have to bite the bullet to be able to get a good relationship out of it, I think, which sounds really brutal. Like yeah. there's just no way around it. Unless it's someone that you're already really close no. with then you may as well have that relationship. But if it's someone that you don't know. Um, and to be fair, it definitely was easier for me on both fronts because I kind of had a bit of an in, I guess. Like I sort of knew them personally to some extent. Um, whereas when you don't know someone, I can, yeah, I can only imagine that it'd be the <laughs> most uncomfortable thing in the world to do. 
Yeah, but I think as well, like, asking someone to be your mentor, obviously I haven't experienced this, but I'm, I'm just sort of, like, hypothesizing here. But it's probably a pretty, like, nice thing to have someone to say, like, look, yeah. I really appreciate and, like, really admire your practice and what you do as a practitioner. Like, would you be... Like, I'm sure it's it's quite flattering to have yeah. someone reach out to you in that capacity. So I think, like, you know, even though it can feel daunting, it's, you know, you're, it's going to be for the best in the end for both parties. Like, you know, mm. if someone it's if someone's going to refuse you as a mentor, it's probably because they don't have the time. Yeah. Um, it's unlikely that it's going to be because they don't like you or because they don't want to do it. Um it's just, it's usually going to be more of an admin capacity. But I think most people in our industry, from what I've experienced, are willing to help out people who are coming up because we all recognise the need for continuing our profession and, exactly. um, like, yeah, like getting, yeah, building our industry and, and supporting those who are coming after us. So, yeah. yeah, I think try not to think too much about your place with it and think a little bit more about, like, the long-term benefits of it, both in terms of personally and professionally, like how you can actually use that rela- relationship to pro- like progress your career and, yeah, do what you want to do with your life. <laughs> and that's the other thing is that I feel like you don't have to... Like, I think there's a lot of pressure for people to, like, snap up mentors really quickly and, like, all the good ones are going to be gone first and all of that kind of attitude towards it when, I don't know, I feel like, like, it you could just ask someone for coffee and see if you guys click because that's really important as well. It's like you need someone that you can go to when you're feeling stressed and you have no direction, that you want to cry or you want to laugh with or whatever it is. Um, that's, you know, you don't... You don't have to jump in and say, John, and be my mentor before you've actually met them or gotten to know them. You can always just have a coffee and have a chat and say that you're, you know, casually looking for a mentor, but you're unsure as to what direction you want to go in now. That's also not a bad thing. Like, yeah, yeah. I would highly recommend that. Because, yeah, and then even if it's not a good fit with that practitioner, you might they might know someone who's looking for a mentor or mentee and, like, be able to sort of point you in the right direction. I think there's no harm in having those conversations and finding your feet that way. For sure. Um, yeah, and like time-wise, like I didn't, I didn't start my mentorship until October of 2018. So I'd been out of uni for almost a year. Mm. Like I, I would have finished studying the like. Yeah, I was the same. Know, I think a year prior to that. Yeah. And so I think there's no rush to get straight into it. There's always going to be new opportunities coming up, and obviously you know, the APD program is relatively time limited, but, you know, it's not the end of the world if you end up being a little bit more delayed with it. Um, it's just going to give you more time to think and, yeah, progress at your own pace. And there's no, yeah, no harm in that. I think that's a really nice segue into peer relationships because I think... Like you said, if you have that time, you can kind of think for yourself what you want out of your mentoring relationship, but you can also talk to others who are in the same boat as you. And I am a huge advocate of peer relationships. I think I've learned a lot Mm -hmm. from... I mean, this podcast came out of us formally having a peer relationship, which sounds really (laughs) stupid. But I mean, that was kind of where it came out of, right? Like we were bouncing ideas off each other and trying to navigate those early days of finishing uni together 
Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I learned so much out of doing that. Like, I'm so grateful for that relationship that I've had with you. <laughs> Cute. Yeah, <laughs> because I think it gives you that opportunity to bring together your knowledge, like really have like a collective approach to it and share in the things that you're both experiencing. And I think um, more broadly speaking, like having peer relationships with people in our cohorts, it, we were able to see you know, what other people were doing, what kind of jobs and industries they were working in and how they were going with that. And I think that allows you to say, okay, well, like, is that right for me? You know, ask them about their experiences with working in different parts of the industry. And it allows you to kind of just get a better understanding about all of the different options that you've got and how you can, yeah, where you can go from there, Mm. which I think is really important. I think... I don't know if it's the same in the UK, but in Australia, when you're becoming a credentialed psychologist, you have to have peer support groups. Like, there's to be six of you actually discussing cases and things like that, which dietetics mm-hmm. doesn't have. But I think that it's that's really undervalued in dietetics. There's so much that we can learn from each other. And it doesn't have to be that formalised, you know, you bring a patient that you've seen and you sit down and you pick apart the case study together. I think there's so much to be said about navigating being a new grad in a field where there's no jobs. What do you do? How are you feeling about it? What's that? What's your action plan with that? What have other people done? Um, And I guess that's essentially what this podcast is in a way, is that huge peer support group in that we want to be able to air our grievances and also hopefully give some light at the end of the tunnel for some people of where to look for jobs or where to go when you've found no motivation and if you don't have motivation to find a job that's okay too all of that sort of side of things mm-hmm. um because there's so much pressure to get jobs as soon as you've finished and go like we've said multiple times go into that acute clinical path but being able to flesh out your skill set and understand where else you can work can be super valuable yeah for sure and i think um it's something that's really, as you said, undervalued in the industry. And it's something that we, I guess that's, yeah, like you said, like that's where we came from because we recognize the need to share that experience and to have these conversations and to have it like more, more than anything, just have these conversations documented so that we can continue to support people after us because there was nothing like what we were doing when Mm. we started. Like there wasn't really that, place to go in that support network and I mean who knows where the pantry party is going to grow to because we've we've sure as hell got plans for it but (laughs) I think you know we really recognize the need to support people who are coming into this industry and I guess finding you know ways that we can support people to find their feet in their own way rather than feeling like they need to fit the mold of the dietitian um because as we've you know, as we've talked to no end about, like, that's fine if you want to go down that pathway and that, you know, you're well suited to a typical dietetics position. But more often than not, because of the current state of the industry and the way that things are moving and the needs of our populations, we're having to be more innovative and creative with how we're working and using our skills. And so if we can have conversations about you know, the potential of what we've got here because, like, I mean, not to talk ourselves up too much, but <laughs> I feel like dietetic, like dietitians have a really good skill set that 
translates across a lot of different areas of health and I guess because we're working with people on such a personal issue that food is it's something that is really flexible in the way that we can apply these skills across populations and across um, different settings but until you actually start to explore that and see what your potential is we're not we're not as an industry thinking creatively and we're not pushing those boundaries of what we can do. Yeah. Um, and I think more broadly speaking, because obviously the, like you and I are quite motivated by the social justice aspect and making a more inclusive and compassionate and person centered model for, you know, healthcare and just generally speaking the way that people go about living their lives. <laughs> it's um when you can start to incorporate some of those things and have those deeper conversations with the people around you it actually progresses you forward in your thinking and makes that space safer for the people who you're trying to help exactly exactly right it's kind of like that it's almost like wildfire a little bit that like if you spread it with word of mouth like you talk about it within your friendship group sometimes that spreads like really quickly um, and I think I really want to, t- I want to touch on the fact that you said that we're really well equipped to work across a multitude of industries. And there's one specific example that I can think of, that's the industry that I'm in, is that I've got a master's degree, but I've had no, I've had public health nutrition training, but I'm working in a public health role without a master's of public health, which most people in my industry have had. And I think it just goes to show that dietitians are so well equipped. We're like really competitive in the workplace because we have such broad training and such a great skill set. going from that one-on-one counseling, understanding how you practice things in terms of a clinical perspective, all the way up to a systems approach. Not many degrees allow you to have that without completing further study. Um, And that's something that I definitely wouldn't have understood had I not spoken to peers or had I not spoken to lecturers about the jobs that I was applying for all of that sort of side of things and pulling out what my degree actually equipped me to do made me realize that I am much more capable than I think I am and I think dietitians especially are very good at underselling themselves um and (laughs) there's definitely that kind of imposter syndrome like you know you really want to let yourself go under the radar but there's there's so much that we have to offer and so much that we are passionate about and so much that you can sell in no matter what area you're going into I know people who have ended up in finance with a nutrition degree like it's there's so many things that we can do that we're just not um that unless you talk to people you don't realize you can do that yeah and I think having those conversations and allowing for that sort of yeah development and learning based on your experiences and based on what other people are doing it allows you to understand the much broader implications of what we're doing and how we how we fit within the world because I think you know I guess we've talked a bit about this is that as a dietetic student you're kind of funneled down this one pathway Mm. um but there's no like you know, that's not going to be sustainable because there's no jobs in that industry for anyone anymore. And so we need to be creative about how we're approaching the workforce and where we're going with and how we're using our degrees. Mm. And I think having those peer relationships can help you explore that and find 
where your place is within that because if we compare even looking back at the guests that we've had on the podcast like we're all working in such different areas but I think we've got so much to learn from each other and how we've applied those skills in that workplace or whatever we're doing um which is just a really nice thing to be able to like deepen your understanding of our place within the world and how we like what our potential is yeah and it's not always, especially with the people that we talked to last season, we talked to new grads about stuff. Like, we all had the same degree when we started out and we were all able to end up in so many different places. And I think that, to some people, that can be really overwhelming, especially when you're trying to possibly grieve the fact that you might not be going into a traditional dietetic role. But coming out the other side, I'm so glad that we had options, that we were able to actually yeah. spread ourselves quite wide in what we could do because you get to try so many different things that so many people aren't able to because they're funneled into a role um and being able to share that experience with others I think has helped people think just more broadly like people I've talked to more broadly about what your nutrition degree could be used for and that it doesn't make you any less of a nutritionist or a dietitian if you're not working in a role that's not technically a nutritionist or a dietitian role. You're still using all of those skills that you paid for to get that nutrition degree. You're still fundamentally a nutritionist or dietitian. You're just applying it maybe a little bit differently to what the typical role is. Yeah, and I think that's something that's really necessary with, like, if we're thinking about advancing our profession and continuing, you know, capitalising on, on our potential as with, like, based on our skill set it's really important that we think of how we can use those skills to actually help people and to move forward and, you know, make the most of them. Because if we're all just settling for that, you know, clinical dietetics job, then we're not making the most of what we've got. Mm. Um, And we're not sharing those skills with other people and being able to actually, yeah, make the most of, of what we can do with them. Um, and you're also severely yeah, so undervaluing guess... your skill set. Like, I know we mentioned this before, yeah. but my God, you have like a whole arsenal of stuff in there. And if you're just selling yourself as someone who can only work one-on-one with people, that is not what you are trained to do. You are trained to advocate for people. You are trained to systems, like think systems wide. You're trained to do quality improvement. You're trained to do auditing. You're trained to do a whole lot of stuff that isn't just that one-on-one patient side of things you've got so many skills to offer that it'd be a shame to undersell that side of things yeah and I think something that I always come back to is that while it's really great to be able to help the person who's sitting in front of you when you're working one-on-one like it obviously I'm super passionate about you know client-centered individualized work but there's a much broader implication to what we can do and how we can shift you know, the cultural narrative of what nutrition is to be so much more helpful to so many more people because, like, this is why I think that health at every size and non-diet approaches are so important is that the general, like, public understanding of nutrition is very ableist and health-centric in that kind of, like, you know, quite oppressive narrative of what health is. And I think if we can start to shift the dialogue of what's important like the number of times that I've said to someone in session you know like nutrition is really not as important as it's made out to be Mm. 
Um, because it's not. Like, as long as you've got those general sort of self-care practices and, like, you're looking after yourself, you don't need to be, like, following some crazy diet. You don't need to be counting your macros and all of that to be healthy. And I think if we can help people recognize that and, like, step away from diet culture and the sort of oppressive systems that we're living in as a collective people we can do so much more as well to help other people who actually need it and the amount Um, of times people have said that they've tried to micromanage their diet and it hasn't worked whether that's for you know reducing your risk of being a diabetic or whether that's losing weight or whatnot that's evidence enough to show that like working one-on-one to empower people is important but we kind of need to reframe that a little bit and that you can utilize that to be able to make a really great impact in the non-diet approach or wherever you're going yeah for sure and it's like I guess helping people recognize what's actually important to them and what their potential is as an individual to help themselves like first of all look after themselves but once you've got that under control, once you're kind of at a good place in your own self-care, the way that you can help others recognise that as well and make a more overall, like, compassionate approach to looking after ourselves because the amount of time that people waste on diets is just ridiculous and the amount of potential that is wasted on... Like, that amount of energy that is wasted on being preoccupied with some weird weight loss plan. Mm. Like people have so much more potential than that to make such a big change in the world. And I think a lot of dietetics is consumed by that as well, which is really sad because, you know, as we've been saying, we've got this great skill set that we could be using to really help people, but we're sort of reinforcing these narratives that are so unhelpful because they keep people preoccupied with their weight and very specific health outcomes that, don't even really matter that much Mm. um, rather than being able to work on like social justice stuff or, you know, do well in their jobs or whatever they might be. Like it's just really sad seeing so much energy go into something that's so unhelpful. Yeah, exactly. And I think like you're saying, if you reflect on your skill set and realise I know about you, sorry, I'm, I'm starting three sentences here, um, <laughs> that when I started looking into this stuff and seeing that we learned about the systems approach and I sort of saw how the systems approach and what was wrong with the system and how that was affecting people in terms of their food intake, it helped me become a better practitioner because I realized I can only do so much for these people and I need to teach them to be able to navigate the bigger system that's out there. And that's the, those are the skills that we want to give our patients, clients, whatever we're calling them, to then be able to sustain their health in the long term. And if I hadn't taken the time to reflect on all of the skills that I had and all of the knowledge that I had about the one-on-one stuff as well as the system stuff, I wouldn't be able to find that middle ground in terms of being able to explain that and educate them on the system as well as helping them one-on-one with whatever they needed in terms of the more micronutrient stuff, I guess. Really shitty example. Yeah. But you only learn yeah. more and by guess... being able to navigate what your own skill set has given you, I guess. Yeah. And I think, like, what I really like about my position and, the, like, the role that I'm in at the moment is that I'm able to do both. I'm able to have that broader, more public health um, 
or social justice lens, but also help people one-on-one with like, you know, managing their nutritional health. Um, so, you know, we're able to sort of apply ourselves in different ways, even within the same, you know, individual client setting. Um, but it just goes to show how much, how big, like our capacity is as practitioners, um, to be able to help people. Yeah. Like, at the end of the day, that's what we're trying to do, right? Exactly. So on that note, I guess now that we're sort of encroaching on talking about the individual and clients and some of that social justice stuff, would it be helpful if we talk a little bit about the um, yeah, learning from that lived experience and, and how we can incorporate that into our practice? Yes, I think that could only be helpful. Um, yeah. I I think you definitely have a lot more um, practical knowledge about this side of thing, things. I have a very much theoretical knowledge, but it's helped me in so many ways. I think... Um, how do I put this? This would have been a really hard concept for me to learn at university, to be honest. I wish I had learned yeah. it to some extent, but also... Um, it's hard to, I guess at uni you're taught all about objective evidence-based facts for the most part. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're taught about, you know, person-centered care to an extent, but there's levels to person-centered care that I have now learnt about after going to university, whether that was through doing proper like professional development stuff or doing some Instagram following and reading posts or reading articles or whatever. And the importance of lived experience in order to make someone's health better, in inverted commas, or I guess improve their health, whatever that means to them, um, is something that has taken me a long time to get my head around but has been so effective once I've learnt about it and been able to apply it to various situations in my life. I was very vague. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I think you're on the money there, though, in that, like, I guess going on what I was saying before about how we, we can apply ourselves in so many different ways, I guess what the impact of like learning from other people's lived experience and from my own lived experience has had on my, the way that I communicate and my professional stuff is that it's really allowed me to focus on the things that I perceive as important based on that rather than what I'm assuming to be important. Like rather than opposing my agenda as a professional on someone else or on a population Mm. and making assumptions about what they want I'm able to actually focus on what the person I'm trying to help wants. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I think the only catch 22 with this is, and I don't mean this in a bad way at all, is that it's so much harder to incorporate lived experience into a healthcare plan as a health professional because it takes away, it, it sorry, it adds an element of ambiguity to your plan mm-hmm. because you never know what you're going to deal with there's always a spanner in the works which is not a bad thing at all because it it that ambiguity allows for so much more 
rapport development and a better relationship to be formed with whoever you're working with. But that's, I guess that's the only downside is that when you're not thinking about having lived experience and not truly doing patient-centered care, you don't have to worry about that stuff, but that doesn't mean, it also means that the plan probably won't work, if that makes sense. Like in the long term, it's not going to be as effective. Um, And it's really hard to kind of be able to throw away the efficiency side of yourself as a dietitian or as very usually a type A person and be like, it's not going to be the most efficient process if I do incorporate lived experience, but it's going to be the most resounding process in the long term. Yeah. And I guess um, that's something that I've definitely found in my practice in that, you know, some people will come to us just wanting to learn how to eat intuitively and wanting to like, like almost seeing intuitive eating as another framework to, yeah, to learn and to check those boxes. And, you know, once they've got the practical knowledge, they're on their way and that's fine. Mm. But the people that I see the most change in and the most um, development in are the ones that come with very little expectations of like what they're going to get out of it. Um, or even if they do have expectations, they're willing to actually unpack that and learn and develop their skills based on their own experience rather than what I'm telling them and educating them on. And I think that's something that's really important to make that different, like make that like differentiate those two things is that, you know, there's the self-exploratory side of working one-on-one where you're helping a client unpack their own beliefs and their own attitudes and learn from their own experience. And then there's that education side of things where, we can impart some of our expertise in nutrition or in intuitive eating or whatever it is. And so I guess what we were taught, I mean, as you said, we were taught about person-centered care and about, you know, trying to practice with empathy and compassion, but I don't think I really grasped how to actually do that until I started working in this setting where I was thinking like, you know, what your, what we're goal, our goal is, is to use our expertise to support that person in their own individualized goals and in that, in their own individualized experience with what they're trying to work towards. So like, rather than seeing, I try and describe it as rather than seeing like intuitive eating, for example, as a framework that we're like putting over them and helping that person fit into seeing it as like, you know, a roadmap where people are like drawing on different bits and pieces that support them in order to reach where they're trying to go. Yeah. It's like coming from the bottom up rather than the top down. Yeah, exactly right. And it's, it's exhausting. Like it's to do that as a health professional, have to be emotionally invested in that every time is not an easy situation to be in, but it's, it's definitely far more rewarding because you know you've equipped a person with skills to be able to navigate so many facets of their life because of the experience that they've shared with you. And I don't... I think it also comes back to that power imbalance or balance, rather. Um, In that, and we've talked a little... We talked about this with Laura, that idea of de-experting yourself and Mm -hmm. understanding that the person's experiences in their body and uh, and saying that their lived experience is just as valid as your 
degree because they're the ones that have lived in that body for their life. They're the ones that have experienced things in their lives and therefore the reaction to what they're having is more valid than whatever you could place on them or your own judgments that you place on them. It's being able to foster that and understand that relationship in order to help them in the best way possible. I don't, like, to me, I'm saying all of this in a very, like, fancy way, but I just don't understand how we haven't had any of that education earlier. Like, it just doesn't yeah. make any sense to me. It's <laughs> Yeah. And I think um, from what, I mean, from my understanding and from what I've experienced in working in clinical positions throughout, like, work, like, um, like placement and stuff, I think where it differs is that in a hospital setting, you're just trying to get that person well enough to leave. And so you're really implementing, you know, that like medical nutrition therapy to really get them out the door, get them well enough. And that has to be based on what we know from evidence-based nutrition. Like, you know, there's no question about it. You just have to do that. And obviously while the patient can have an input into what you're doing and, and find ways that work for them in a private practice or community setting, the benefit that you've got is being able to work with that person long-term and actually see what works and find out what works in a sustainable way for them. Yeah. And it's really hard to, I know I keep banging on about how difficult this is. It's worth it. I promise. But as a, and as we talked about with Laura is that you're pumped through uni to think that you're the expert about all of these things. And like you're saying, doing that top down approach, um, to for the betterment of health for this individual when really often the betterment of the health from these things that you're thinking about is on a bigger scale versus the actual person in themselves I think it's really hard to take that title away from yourself it takes a lot of work to be able to say that you're not the expert and be able to step down off a pedestal and really reflect on firstly why that's important to you and then also being able to understand how to appropriately reflect upon what the individual is saying to you and how you can use that. It takes a lot of like deconditioning um, and a lot of just stripping back to the fact that you're a person too and you could just make this a conversation and understand how that works in the frame of nutrition if that's what you're doing it in. Um, and it's a lot of mental don't want to say anguish but it's a lot of it's a lot of reflection and a lot of having to um part with ideas of what you thought your role was going to be when it's not yeah for sure and I think it takes yeah as you're saying it takes a lot to really break down your expectations of what success is and what positive outcomes are because you might not actually see much in terms of like changes like those quantitative changes to health working in this field, but it's actually, you're, you're creating a much more achievable thing by taking a step back and thinking, okay, like rather than imposing my ideas of what good health is, let's explore this for that person so that they can make those decisions for themselves, practice that agency and autonomy within their bodies so that they're actually finding something that works for them and feels good for them. Exactly. Um, and I think for a lot of people as well, like as a patient or a client, a lot of people come to us with that expectation that we are going to give them all of the answers and we're going to give them 
you know, impart our expertise mm. on them. That's the other side Because that's it. the model that they know of healthcare. Yeah. yeah. And so a lot of what we do is sort of starting to break down those walls and say, okay, well, like, what is actually important to you and how can we help you in a way that actually, like, what are you actually looking for out of this? Because a lot of people come to us thinking, like, oh, this is what I should be doing. Like, this is, this is what's right based on what they've been told through, you know, diet culture or like society or whatever Mm. um and so a lot of what we do is like stripping back those expectations and finding like sort of getting to the core of who that person is and what they actually want so that you can use that expertise to help them achieve those goals rather than striving for something that isn't even what aligns with their values yeah and that's the other thing is that you touched on this but trying to educate the other person about why this is important as well why we don't want to tell them what to do that it needs to come from a collaborative point and if not a point where they're leading everything and what they think their capacity is and people are scared of that people like you're saying the medical model is so ingrained that a lot of people are expecting you to do the work for them um so sometimes they can feel a little bit offended when you're like i'm not leading the way this is 100 percent up to you But in the long term, that's shown to be far more effective than sticking a Band-Aid solution on something. It's something that actually equips them to deal with the challenges that life's giving them instead of doing, giving them a plan for a very specific situation that has very specific parameters, I guess. Yeah, it empowers people to make those decisions for themselves and to practice that um, decision-making around like to check in with themselves and find what's actually important and worthwhile for them rather than wasting their time and energy and money on things that are not going to actually be like help them yeah not going to be effective exactly so i guess um on that note i I guess we haven't really talked much about the broader lived experience things but i think it's worth noting that Obviously, a lot of what we've been talking about is the very individualised one-on-one setting where you're kind of learning from people's, like, experience based on their lifetime and their, like, the things that have happened to them. But I guess just as important as that is listening to the broader societal narratives of lived experience. So I'm talking about, like, learning from people of colour who have gone through... um, you know, experienced racism or learning from LGBT plus people who are, you know, experiencing and navigating the healthcare system in from that perspective. Because I think, again, what we're taught in our degrees is a very whitewashed, privileged version of health, mm. which doesn't encompass some of these marginalised communities. And that's a real problem um, because a lot of what we're taught is only tailored to that you know that certain population and it's not actually going to be effective empowering or person-centered for other people exactly um and i think it also so, especially as a dietitian you're giving critical analysis skills something that i got very angry about on instagram recently um <laughs> was the idea that being a certain being of a certain culture puts you at risk of a disease that has, I don't know, basically a lot of the evidence shows that if you're of a certain culture, 
you may be more like prevalent you may be more likely to get diabetes or you might be more likely to be overweight all of this other stuff when really it's the evidence that they're basing that on is a not very diverse population and not I'm not describing this very well but basically a lot of the literature is based on not multicultural populations they're not representative of the proportions of a country such as Australia for example that is incredibly multicultural um, and as a health professional being able to take that on and being able to understand why people struggle I guess in terms of their health because of the way that they're being forced to think about their health in terms of that more westernized style of health is really 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 important in order to make a difference yeah. to those who are in minorities yeah it's messed up and I think yeah I guess what ends up happening is that so Based on the research, okay, so going, taking a step back, mm. the people who are in power in the healthcare system are, generally speaking, white men, right? <laughs> Correct. <laughs> Not just in health, but yes. <laughs> um, they're the population that holds dominance and holds power over other populations, whether that be women or people of colour or queer people, whatever it is. Um, and so when medical research is being done more often than not, that research centres that population and centres, you know, white men. Um, and that then trickles down into the guidelines, the recommendations that we're told to make, the frameworks of health, the way that we're taught to navigate the healthcare system. And so the more you deviate from that norm, in inverted commas, of who that medical research is based on, the worst your health outcomes are going to be based on that model because, you know, the idea of health, what good health is, is again based on that population rather than being based on a broader, more inclusive population. And so good health, speaking like about the topic of health, might not be aligned, like for you or me, might not be aligned with the person who, you know, the like makes the rules basically. Yeah. And so even though those things might not be important to us, we're still told that, oh, you're not healthy because blah, blah, blah. Um, and while, sure, a lot of that research is based on, you know, promoting people's quality of life and helping people live, like, long and happy lives, what we're actually doing is refusing people person-centred care because the treatment modalities and the methods of treating these things are based on, again, that dominant population. And so mm -hmm. an example is that, like, you know, quite often fat people are told to lose weight before they're actually given medical care that's going to help their condition because we're told that being fat is a risk factor for whatever but in actual fact, it's probably that that denial of treatment that's actually the risk factor. But weight is being used as like a scapegoat to tr like to ignore their health. And so, you know, if you're not getting medical treatment for something that's causing you harm, of course you're going to have a higher risk like of it because you're not being treated compassionately. Whereas if that person had gone in and they were actually given the treatment to begin with without shaming comments mm. on their weight, then they're going to get better. 
And I think the same goes for any other sort of socio-cultural deviation from white maleness. Um, Because what ends up happening is that people are put off seeking medical treatment because they're too afraid that they're going to be shamed for who they are or what they look like or, you know, their culture and told to change in a way that's not sustainable for them. Yeah. Like... I know we haven't talked, I mean, I know we want to talk a lot more about cultural competency, but in dietetics, a lot of what we're taught is based around a Western diet and based around a very, you know, standardized, like, white person diet. And so I think a lot of people are excluded from our work because we're not taught about, like, you know, nutrition for... Asian populations or African populations in a way that's actually going to allow those people to continue eating the things that are culturally appropriate for them. Correct. Um, And so what we're doing is sending the message that like dietetic services aren't for those people when in actual fact, if we were taught about it and if we could focus on the lived experience that those people have and understand the things that are important to those populations and understand cultural competency of those unique, um, populations we'd actually be able to help them in the same way that we can help white people um but actually in a way that's actually going to help them rather than just imposing something that doesn't align with their values yeah you express that much better than i (laughs) i ever could have i feel like i feel like my brain is just like imploding and this stuff like that's the thing that i wish we were taught at uni is that health is so individualized but there's so many factors external to that individual that impact the way that they experience health and experience the healthcare system. Yeah. And if we can help that person, you know, like I'm happy to see people of differing backgrounds and people who are like, you know, I, we don't discriminate <laughs> on who we see, Yeah. but the barrier is that that person isn't going to feel like they can access our services before they even get through the door because they're worried that, you know, a clinician like us is going to impose our beliefs about food on them Mm. when in actual fact like we I'm much more I'm not gonna like I'm as a clinician I'm not gonna impose that on them I'm much I would much rather listen to what they actually you know learn about their culture and learn about what they eat and how they eat and what like what's important to them so that we can have an open conversation and learn from that lived experience of finding a way that's actually going to be good for them to navigate this rather than, yeah, pushing on them some very whitewashed form of how to eat. Yeah. I really did not articulate that well, but no, no, you know what I'm saying is that... You 100% did. Yeah. And I think that just goes to, particularly in, like, this is something that we've been thinking a lot more about recently with everything that's going on with the black lives matter movement is that we're unintentionally solidifying those institutionalized racist patterns and unless we're doing something to actively fight against it those populations are still being gatekept from our services. And so, of course, they're going to have worse health outcomes based on that, again, based on that white Eurocentric model. Yeah. Because they're not even feeling like we're approachable to walk through our doors. And I think, again, that gets um, 
perpetuated by the dietetics courses and the people who access higher education on this stuff and become qualified to be dietitians because these populations are just basically told that it's not for them yeah. on a clinician's space or otherwise. And so it's a real problem within our industry and within the broader healthcare system that people of colour are not represented at a clinician in a clinician population or in a patient population. And so we can't like learn from that lived experience and learn from those people's lifestyles and cultures to include that in what we're learning. Correct. Um, which I think is a real shame because we've got such great potential as an industry to help people. And in my eyes, that should mean everyone. It shouldn't mean... Just you know, the people who can access the, it. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think it's really important to actually start to break these things down at a systemic level um, because it shouldn't be left on the individual clinicians to do that work for themselves. Like I'm really disappointed that we are left having these conversations. Like we shouldn't have to have this conversation. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I know we've touched on it before. Um, and I guess this shows how broad lived experience is as well. But the idea of us being a typical people in a nutrition and dietetics course in terms of mm-hmm. my skin colour, your body shape and your ethnicity as well. I, like that to me shows how it's <laughs> gonna sound really mean, but how backwards the, the industry is, is that that diversity is not there from the people who want to be in the field in terms of wanting to go from the top down. Like, no wonder nobody's going to respond at the bottom if they can't see themselves in those positions and they're people who are supposed to be leading the profession. And for me as a as a person of colour, and I've tried very hard to not make this about me because I'm not a black person of colour and obviously this is a very different political situation, but it's it's hard to find, like, to understand your place and understand where you sit when all of the literature that you're reading goes against or doesn't include you when, and you probably have the same thing mm-hmm. lies in terms of it's, it's really hard to truly believe in the, the guidelines that you're supposed to be following or um, obviously you, you do apply them when necessary, but it's, it's something that's always at the back of your mind saying this literature doesn't actually represent me what if like I'm part of that four percent that doesn't respond to this purely based on my skin color or my gender and you think about all the different Mm -hmm. minorities that are out there it's just a really disappointing place to be I guess in the medical profession where yeah like you're saying the lack of diversity in terms of guidelines as well as the people who are leading the profession just isn't there at all and that's where I think those and this comes back to also your peer-to-peer relationships. Is like, talk to those people about their lived experiences. This is where this is all come, comes into one real big category. It's like, talk to the people who are in the minority and about how they feel about this stuff, how their culture can affect their practice, whether that comes directly to food or whether that's because they understand the different priorities in different cultures in terms of family versus health versus career versus money. All of those sorts of things come into play when it comes into your health as well. Um, Mm -hmm. yeah, sorry, went on a bit of a rant there. (laughs) No, I think it's really, really important to have these things, have these conversations. And I guess at the core of it, what's happening is that 
we're not listening to people. I mean, you and I hopefully are starting <laughs> to shift this and individually we, like you and I are, but as an industry, we're not listening to people who need our help and who actually are facing much worse circumstances because of, you know, the Eurocentric patriarchal heteronormative system Mm. and what that means is that those people aren't represented in the data and so we're not given the tools to help them Mm. and so it continues to like it creates this like cyclic approach Mm. yeah of like worsening health outcomes and then again just being told that because of this they're not worthy of treatment um when in actual fact, if we focused research on those populations, we would be we would have the tools to help them and we would have the insight and understanding of what's important to them to support them with their health. And that would rectify those those poor health outcomes. Mm. Um, but unfortunately, obviously, health is very political and is very capitalist in that, you know, the research follows where the money is and unfortunately much more money gets allocated to those affluent and wealthy populations so we don't end up seeing people represented in the data and in healthcare. so i mean i don't know how we can rectify this because you and i are just two people working (laughs) one-on-one with people but hopefully we start to see a shift um and you know helping some of that disparity between the these populations because it's just it's disheartening to see because i want to be able to help people regardless of their background Mm. um but there are so many additional barriers to those people accessing these services and even our ability to help those people as practitioners based on our education because of the way that we've been taught Mm. exactly and that's where that kind of gap of lived experience comes in and being able to respect that yeah. and again having the tools to be able to incorporate that into your work is is another step which I think we could talk about another another day but just acknowledging that lived experience matters on so many levels um you know yeah whether that's race gender coming from a history of an eating disorder coming from a history of tr- just you know, psychological trauma, there's there's so much there. And even if you've come from a perfectly normal, normal being, sorry, that's not the right word, but having a, you know, it's a fairly... term, but... Yeah. <laughs> having a fairly typical, you know, kind of background, I guess, that lines up with the literature and kind of is, you know, that that's still important to learn about, to be able to experience and understand people's perspectives from, to be able to make a plan or make help people feel at ease with their food and their eating and their health. Um, it's, yeah. yeah. And I think this is a good time to be thinking about that sort of stuff, especially as a clinician. And Mm -hmm. if, if, yeah, I know Liza and I always here to have a chat. If anyone does want to have a chat about that stuff that offers, just shoot us a DM. I will talk till the cars, the cows come home. The cars? The cars come home. (laughs) Um, whether, yeah. And I think that's worth saying whether that's asking us questions or sharing your own lived experience and things that you feel that we could do to like amplify people's voices um, and share things that are important because, Mm. you know, we're just as open to learning as we are to help educating people. And so 
I think, yeah, we're here to start conversations. We're not here to tell people how it's done. So our DMs are always open to, yeah, yeah. we are very much um, accepting our um, lack of knowledge in so many different things. So we would love to hear from people. If anyone wants to be on the pod to talk about their lived experience, that would be ace. (laughs) So yeah, um, we're, we're always, we're always open for that. Um, but yeah, I guess that's probably quite a nice note to end this episode on. Agreed. Um, we, so just a little bit of a like admin update. Mm-hmm. Um, next episode will be the last episode of season two. So we're going to have a bit more of a lengthy catch up and like <clears throat> check in career wise, life wise, and just a bit more of a general chat rather than getting into some of these deep topics around professional stuff yeah so as part of that we're going to have a lengthier what's in season next fortnight um but bran was there anything that you wanted to chat about what's been in season for you since our last episode just while while we're here Nah, i'm gonna i'm gonna hold on to things i'm gonna gonna hold on to it yeah put a couple of things in the bank that's it (laughs) um yeah, well let's maybe let's keep keep everyone hanging for that. Um but yeah, I guess if anyone wants to chat about this stuff, wants to share anything, wants to make a comment, you know, we're always up for hearing anything. You can shoot us a message on Instagram or there's a form on our website where you can like submit and say hey. Um but yeah, can find us on Instagram on the website. Always around, always open to have a chat about this stuff. Um, Everything will yeah. be in the notes below on how to how to find us on the interwebs. Yes, cool. of course. Oh, All right. Note. Well, until next time, <laughs> we will speak to you guys for our season finale in a fortnight. I know. Yeah. All right. We'll chat then. Bye. Bye.